This morning is December 12th. It's Sunday morning. We uh, are going to cover a topic this morning called On the Right Road, But Headed the Wrong Direction. Do you ever... I know if you move to a city like Houston, this, uh, this could be a real-life experience. Have you ever had somebody tell you something like, well, you need to be uh, on Westheimer? And... Uh, Maybe we're in the 1500 block of Westheimer and you're excited when you don't know where Westheimer is and you find it and say, wow, I must be close. Only to find out it's 50 miles long and uh, you're in the 10,000th block and headed the wrong way. It's not always enough just to be close to Christianity. You know, uh, Billy Graham was the one who said it. He said, America has a severe problem. He said, America has received enough weak, dead Christianity to be inoculated from the real thing. See, if you receive weak dead cells from a virus, it prevents you from getting the real virus, which, of course, in the medical world is a benefit. In Christianity, this is a horrible thing. You can hang out around Christianity. You can hear the songs. You can learn to recite the right words, all of those things, and receive enough of what is weak and dead, not really life-changing, that it inoculates you from the real thing. You can be on the right road, but not headed the right direction. I've been very saddened to find out that it is much easier to reach unchurched people for Jesus than it is to reach people that have been in church because the people that are in church think that they have no need of change. They're perfect and something's wrong with all the rest of the world and not them. Whereas people that have grown up outside of the church are more willing to admit, you know, I know I don't have this all right. Uh, I need help. And that's where the heart of Jesus really is. Those that are willing to admit they need help. We're going to start in the book of Luke today. There are 27 books uh, in the New Testament, and Luke is the third of them. So if you get to the New Testament, you turn to Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. Once you're in Luke, we're going to be in the 10th chapter. And the 10th chapter of Luke in the Thompson Chain Bible, those of you that have it, is on page 1152. I want to remind you of a couple things so that we don't have to read them all. Something that I teach in here on a regular basis when you're in college and you're learning about anthropology or uh, some of the other scientific disciplines, all kinds of questions arise in people's minds. Things like, well, what about the dinosaurs? And what about the age of man and the age of the earth? Especially if you look at geology and rock formations that are millions of years old and these kind of things. And you wonder how that fits in with the Bible. Let me clear up something real quick. And I say this a lot, but I want you to know it. The Bible doesn't skirt the issue, but that's not what the Bible is about. The Bible was introduced to mankind for this reason. It is to tell about the beginning of man, not the beginning of the earth, not the beginning of anything else, the beginning of man, the problem that was introduced to man, and God providing a solution. So the Bible begins with man in a garden and a problem that was introduced. Man's desire for knowledge caused him to reject God as a source of knowledge and make decisions for himself. God then introduces a solution in the Bible. And uh, we will get to more of what that is constantly as we teach. And the end of the Bible finishes with man in a garden-like state all over the earth, totally dependent upon God for his knowledge of right and wrong. So when you look at the Bible, it's, it's not a scientific book, although it, it mentioned scientific principles, things that are well advanced, way beyond the time that it was written in. The time that Moses wrote, the life is in the blood, 
Doctors were bleeding people to try to cure them of diseases. You know, the time that uh, Moses wrote about quarantining, they had, it was almost 4,000 years before, or 3,600 years before they knew there was a, uh, something you couldn't see called the germ. So the book contains scientific principles, but that's not its purpose. Its purpose was to reach you so that you would realize the state that man is in, the problem that's come upon man, and that there's a solution for it. When you look at the Bible in that light, all of a sudden pieces start to fall together. You don't have to figure out why there's a dinosaur bone somewhere that is older than uh, some theologians say that it should be or those kind of things. And it should peel away some of the confusion. When we study Genesis, I will go into those first few chapters in the creation a lot more. But today we're going to be in Luke. And since the story of the Bible is about man being shrouded in death, you remember God said, if you do this, you will die. And ever since people have been dying, well, the solution is some kind of relief from death. We're going to pick up in Luke 10 with the message that we're, you can be on the right road, but headed the wrong direction. It's uh, Luke 10, verse... 21, at that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. Before we go too much further with this, this is a strange thing. Why would God want to hide anything from anybody? And why, was he, why does He want to reveal things to people? There's a law, a spiritual law that works in the Bible that's no different than gravity. And it basically works like this. If you are proud and in your own eyes want to be exalted, God makes it His mission to bring you down. If, however, you are low in your own eyes and well aware that He's much higher than you, He desires to bring you up. This is something that is totally foreign to man's normal uh, way of doing things. We exalt ourselves in our own eyes all the time. Everything about our lives is to present to everyone, I'm okay. I'm doing good. You need, in fact, you should be like me. From the way that we dress to the houses we live in to the cars that we drive to the fashion statements that we try to make by wearing certain labels, all of those things is normally within a man to present an image that you want people to see about you. But if you want to earn God's favor, it's not required that you be devoid of confidence, that you be beat down, it's required that you look at your life with sober judgment, that you begin to see some of those material things and go, you know what, that's not what life's about. And you take an honest assessment. Jesus is praising His Father because He says that it was God's will for, to, to reveal Jesus or to reveal Himself to the lowly ones. This is why the Bible teaches that if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must become like a child. Yeah, you ever watch kids? You know, a kid can dance around in here and have fun. Never worry about what you think about him. A kid could care less whether he's wearing Jabot jeans, which were the thing back in my day. I have no idea. Or guest jeans. I don't have any idea what people are wearing now because mine are from Walmart. But they don't care. They don't care. They naturally just want to do a couple things. They want to do things that please them because they have a little sinful nature and they want to please their parents. Well, the part of it where they want to please their parents is what God's looking for from us. And He will reveal Himself to you in that situation. So we're going to keep going. It says, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And those to whom the Son chooses 
to reveal Him. This is an odd statement. I decided to include this part as we were teaching before we really get to where we're going because you need to know this. Acts 17.26 says that God determined the times and places you would live and work so that you would reach out and find Him, though He's not far from each one of you. The Bible makes a blanket statement. God desires that all men be saved. Then He goes on to say, Whosoever shall call upon the Lord shall be saved. But then you see a statement like this. No one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So how do you reconcile statements like this? Or John 6.44 that says, You cannot be saved unless the Spirit of the Father draw you. What are you to do with something like that? Well, the first thing you need to do this morning is feel honored because you would not be in this place. You would not be sitting with Bibles open, listening to some fool standing up here with a microphone if you were not being drawn by God. But He cares very much about you. He has chosen to reveal Himself to you. And because He's chosen to reveal Himself, He's begun working in the events of your life to cause Himself to be revealed. That really is what our topic is about today. Those whom God has chosen to reveal Himself. You say, but what about somebody else who is not? It has everything to do with their heart. It's not your job to judge it, but also you can't accuse God of fault because somebody else has not received knowledge about Him. The Bible says, everyone who seeks finds. Everyone who seeks finds. The only conclusion you can come to if Jesus reveals the Father to those He chooses is He chooses to reveal Him to those that are seeking Him. But not everybody seeks God. Most people go through their whole lives doing everything they can to kill that inward witness. And it can be promiscuity, it can be drugs, it can be all the things that you already know about and we're well experienced in, unfortunately but you do whatever it takes to remove that inward witness that is pushing you towards God because you know inside God put an eternity in your heart that something's right and you're drawn towards it. And this manifests in all kinds of ways. There's not a place on the earth you can go to and find a natural atheist. That is an invention of man. It's a product of the intellect being taught. Man in his natural state, not anywhere, not anywhere on the planet, not at any time, has ever been an atheist. They have always worshipped something. Now, it's not always a good thing. You know, uh, on the, in India they have 12 national gods. One of them looks like a big rat. I don't know how you could worship that, but it's a testimony that within man there is a desire to reach out for the eternal. God put that in us. So you are hardwired from the very beginning to reach out for God. And God is looking Chronicles 29.13 says He's looking for those whose hearts are fully committed that He might strengthen you. The eyes of the Lord, the Bible teaches, are ranging the earth. He's looking for those who are seeking Him so that He can reveal Himself. That puts a whole different perspective on things. And you should feel honored. You young women especially. You know, we live in a society where you look at a billboard and it's been airbrushed and it's been tweaked just so, so that this image you see, mostly of silicone and collagen, projects something that you almost subconsciously feel like you have to measure up to. And if you don't, there's not a sense of worth there. But the God that created the entire universe has chosen you to reveal Himself to you. How honored is that? How awesome is that? That's beautiful. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, 
Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. The words of Jesus, this idea that He came to reveal His Father, that He was looking for those that were seeking God, was something that prophets and kings... You realize that 4,000 years of history... There's a chart on the back wall that shows this, and obviously you can't read it from where you're sitting. 4,000 years of people lived and died for one purpose, waiting for the guy that would come that would reveal the way out of death and in life. There were prophets, there were kings like King David, prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel who longed for this day. And guess who's the beneficiary of this day? You guys. Boy, we ought to feel honored. There ought to be no self-esteem problems in the church of God. When you begin to see yourself as God sees you, you cannot at all feel down. You know, if you have what I call the mully grubs, if you wake up and just don't feel well, and I do that yesterday, somebody brought it to my attention, what's wrong with you? You need to back off and look from the 30,000 mile high perspective. How does God see me? Because the Bible says you are the righteousness of God in Christ. The Bible says He has made you participate in His divine nature. Now, if you got to participate in Elvis's nature, that'd be pretty cool, right? You sing, get the little hip thing going, you know. I mean, that would be kind of neat. People might even flock to you and buy records. But you have something better than that. God says He's given you access to His nature that it might be in you. How on earth can you look in the mirror and not like what you see if that's the case? Oh, what a beautiful thing we've inherited. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Oh, what an odd position to be in. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, why did he ask this question? To test Jesus. This guy is not sincerely saying, Jesus, I know you're right. I know that I'm not. And I need your help. What, what do I need to do? You remember, God pushes down those that raise themselves up. But those that need a helping hand, those that are willing for it, He raises them up. This guy starts the conversation trying to test Jesus. He's asking Him a question in front of everybody and we're going to find out later it's so that He can justify Himself. What is written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? I love that. What is written in the law? How do you read it? Have you not run across people that when you share with them something in the Bible, they say, well, that's your interpretation, right? As if this is so complicated. Now, it's written mostly by ignorant fishermen in the most common form of the language that was there in the day. I mean, but they say, oh, it's so complex. That's, that's your interpretation. When Jesus found a teacher of the law, an expert, somebody whose goal was to test him, Jesus turned it right around and said, well, how do you read it? That's not a bad thing to do. Most people want to enter into arguments with you about what this says or does not say. Ask them. Ask them. Say, well, here, you show me. What does it say? Quit hiding behind a veil of ignorance when nobody can understand it. The purpose this book was written was to show us that we are in a state that needs help. And He's made the help very plain. Most of the stories in the Bible repeat the exact same theme in thousands of different ways to get one message across. You need help and Jesus is it. So when somebody is combative with you, when they're there just to test you, 
You know, they're trying to push your buttons. Don't fight with anybody. Turn the book around. Say, well, how do you read it? I found out that most people that argue about the Scripture have read very little of it. They heard something on the Discovery Channel one day. You know? From some idiot that, you know, got a degree from somewhere, but never he's got a Ph.D. and never met G.O.D., you know? This stuff is not complicated. We'll see how simple it is today. He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. The answer was a good answer. This guy came to test Jesus though, right? He's an expert in the law. And the story doesn't stop here. If he had a good answer, that should be enough, right? I mean, he understands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbor as yourself. The Bible tells us in many instances that that is the most important thing. So he had a good answer. Where do you think his problem was? Do this and you will live. The problem in America is not that we don't know who Jesus is. The problem is not that there's not a church on every corner. The problem is what this sign says. Perform out there what you've practiced in here. We have been ever hearing and never doing. We know we're supposed to love each other. I was in a secular school this last week. Walked in and on the wall is the golden rule. Everybody remember that from elementary school? I think everybody's taught the golden rule. Well, that comes straight out of Matthew 7. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? The golden rule. That's Scripture. It's the divine principle. It, it basically says show love to everyone. Is there anybody you think that's been educated in the United States at least that doesn't know that? So is the problem that we don't know? Oh, problems that we don't do. And unfortunately, the church has not set a very good example. This guy's a representative member of the church, by the way. He was the church of his day. He was of the nation of Israel, a kingdom of priests, a holy and royal nation, which is now, the Bible said, the church, the Israel of God. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This is when you're talking to somebody and say, hey, friend, Jesus can help you. Oh, well, yeah, that, that's neat. You know, that's, that's good, especially for women and kids. But, I mean, that stuff doesn't work in the real world. Don't you love that kind of intellectual arrogance? Jesus doesn't understand the real world, but we, we do, right? Yeah, that stuff doesn't work in the real world. This guy had the kind of attitude where he came to test Jesus. Most people are there. You're really kind of poking at him to see if he's real. You don't admit that to yourself, but you're poking at his ambassadors, his representatives, to see if he's real. You know what you should do. You should show love, but you're having a hard time doing it. And inwardly, because you don't want to change, because you don't really want to give up certain things because you're so convinced that they're fun, you want to justify yourself. And that's where this guy is. He says, well, yeah, I mean, I know the answer, and you told me to do that, but come on, who is my neighbor? How can this really be done? I love Jesus. You know, I would imagine there are a hundred ways Jesus could have put this guy in his place from an argument standpoint. I mean, we're talking about somebody who is supremely gifted. I mean, he was God. <laughs> but he tells a story so that everybody can understand it. This is the kind of thing that my seven-year-old son could hear and not be confused about the message, about the point. Sometimes preachers make this stuff so complicated. 
And I wonder if that's not to lift us way up and you way down there. You could never understand. Jesus was just the opposite. He came to show us in every common way how God's trying to reveal Himself. So He tells this story. If the problem with this is we don't know how to do it, Lord, and I mean, after all, who is our neighbor? That's not very practical. You mean I have to love everybody out there everywhere? My neighbors are only the ones on the left and right of my house. You know? And they're moving. (laughs) But He wanted to justify Himself. So He asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. Now, this is a story. It it may or may not have happened. I I don't know. But I want to clue you into a couple of things, having been to Israel a few times now. More than 16 times in the New Testament alone. Okay, And there's only 27 books in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there's 39, and they're much bigger books. The 27 in the New are letters that were written. The 39 in the Old are volumes of books. I mean, they're uh, lengthy. I mean, some of the books in the New Testament don't comprise an entire page in your Bible. But having read the New Testament, having been to Israel, you find out something about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is considered in Jewish thought to be the most elevated place on earth. Now, in reality, it is elevated. I mean, you have to, anywhere in Israel that you are, in fact, this is the Dead Sea right here. This is the lowest place on the planet earth. I forgot how many thousand feet it is below sea level, but there is no place on the planet above water that is lower than it. Incidentally, that's where Sodom and Gomorrah used to be, and the Bible says God rained down fire and brimstone and drove it into the earth. Proof the Bible's real. But from here, you have to go up to Jerusalem because this is low and Jerusalem's on a hill. From the western coast, you have to go up to Jerusalem. From the northern area. You have to go up to Jerusalem. From the southern, you have to go up to Jerusalem. This was to teach something. The one thing that was unique about Jerusalem, God had taught Israel, when you make a sacrifice to me, when you come to worship me, it must be in one place. And it was in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem began to symbolize the place where God dwells. Now, in reality, we know God dwells all over the earth. In fact, He dwells in the third and highest heaven. But to teach people something about having to ascend to God, reaching up for God, the Bible always speaks of Jerusalem as up. Okay? Just like anywhere... Have you ever thought about this? I don't have one in here, but let's say I'm holding a globe, right? You ask a little kid, point to heaven. Where do they point? Straight up, right? We've all been taught heaven's up. Well, if I'm in North America pointing up and somebody else is in Southeast Asia pointing up, we're pointing two different directions, aren't we? And got me? So it's all a point of reference. The Bible's trying to teach something with these thoughts, though. So this guy says, um, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jericho is that city in the Bible. If Jerusalem represents God's kingdom and it's up, it's above man's kingdom, Jericho always represents the kingdoms of the world. Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness. Y'all remember the story? Those uh, mountains where he was being tempted, the wilderness, overlooked Jericho when the devil showed him the kingdoms of the world. Jericho is that place that Joshua in the Old Testament, in the book of uh, Joshua, uh, shows up first in, in the promised land where the Lord says, you're going to take this land. Jericho is the kingdom that is protecting it, that is right at the precipice of 
of the entrance place. And God says, hey, Joshua, whose name was just like Jesus, I mean the same words, different translation, means Yahweh's salvation. I want you to go march around that six times. I don't want you to attack it. I don't want you to do anything. I want you to march around it blowing the ram's horn, the shofar, like that one over there. And after you've done this six times on the seventh day, it'll fall and every man will go straight in. I thought about reading you that this morning. It's a story that's familiar to most of you. Jericho was symbolic of the world. And the way that its walls would fall would be at the voice of the ram, the king of the sheep, the the ram's horn, by his people being paraded around. So with that thought in mind, we've got a man who's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's on the right road, but he's headed the wrong direction. People are supposed to be leaving Jericho going up to Jerusalem. You're supposed to be leaving the kingdom of the world headed for the kingdom of the saints. You're supposed to be leaving behind you what is carnal, searching for what is spiritual. This guy's on the right road, but he's headed the wrong direction. So God does something for him. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away leaving him half dead. Pregnancy is something everybody in here is familiar with and You know, we have a church of a handful and most of the women are pregnant (laughs) in our church. Have you ever been half pregnant? Not really possible, is it? You know? Uh, How do you get half dead? I mean, think about that. The Bible says he's half dead. Now, I know, Judah, it's an expression. I love you for being able to understand that. But half dead. You ever think about that? This guy's leaving the kingdom of God, headed towards the kingdom of the world, and he falls into the hands of robbers who strip him and beat him and leave him half dead. Now, we know from an expression standpoint that means that he was near death because he was being beaten. But think about this from a figurative standpoint, just for a minute. It'll get your mind in the right place. If you were on the road somewhere between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world, sold out for either one, you've got a foot in the grave already. The Bible says you're dead. You're already half dead. See, this is a dangerous place to be. Familiar with the things of God, but not living them. Knowing that the world is wrong. Knowing that the ways of the world are wrong, but not totally turning your back on it. Sometimes headed to the kingdom of God, other times headed back to the kingdom of the world. In a constant state of flux, trying to right a fence, you got a foot in death, the kingdom of death, and a foot in the kingdom of of life knowing the good that you ought to do, but not doing it. You're estimating in your heart whether Jesus is worth it and He's coming up short continually. That's a horrible place to be. But what did God do in His mercy? He allowed a train wreck to occur. He allowed something to happen to cause this person to stop. Because had He been allowed to continue to descend from Jerusalem all the way down to Jericho, He would surely die. Now He's just half dead. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Oh, saints, this is one of the saddest lines in the Bible. What are priests? Priests in Old Testament Israel. Priests are of twelve sons that a man had. The, the man's name was Jacob. God changed it to Israel. Changed him from a deceiver, which is what Jacob means, to a prince with God, which is what Israel means. 
It's what God desires to do with all of us. Take you from deception right into being a prince at His table. He had 12 children. One of them's name was Judah. He had 11 brothers. And of the brothers, one of them's name was Levi. And from the Levitical line, from Levi's line, would be the people in Israel that would serve as priests. These priests would not have land of their own. Their 11 brothers would, but they wouldn't. These priests would be supported by their 11 brothers because their function was to hear from God and intermediate for them, to show them how to make atonement, to teach them about what God requires. So you might say that in this setting, in Israel at this time, there was nobody better equipped to help this poor person that was on the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho. I mean, after all, this guy's whole living is derived from being an ambassador, an intermediary for God to people. But what did he do? He passed on by. Saints, we need to be looking for those that are on the right road but headed the wrong direction. Those that have been beaten up by the robbers of life. By the way, what, what does the Bible says the thief comes to do, speaking of Satan? Kill, steal, and destroy. This guy's experiencing that because he's headed the wrong way and God allows it. The Bible says that God works in all things for the good of those that love Him. We need to learn to look at the events of our life not as a chance for God to beat us with a stick and He's mad and He's against us, but perhaps He is shaping us through the things that hurt us, that feel like a beating. Because in this guy's life, we're going to see it works out to be a beautiful thing. But the first person that let him down was the person that should have helped him. He was a Jew. A Levite was a Jew. They were of the same national heritage. He was equipped. He was paid. He was instructed by God to help him. But he passed on by. As we're going through our daily events in life, you can kind of boat ride on the sea of humanity, looking around, thinking, wow, that's beautiful. This is not so beautiful. All of these things in your sightseeing. But the Bible calls us fishermen. We're not supposed to just pass on by seeing those that have been beaten, seeing those that are hurting, and just pass on by the other side of the road. That's wrong. The reason Jesus is teaching this story is because the whole context is that there's a man who's an expert in the law that came to test Jesus, and now Jesus is testing him. He said, hey, how do you read it? He said, well, you need to love everybody. You need to love God. Yeah, but who is my neighbor? I want to justify myself. And he begins to tell a story about somebody just like this expert in the law who passes by on the other side of the road while they see somebody in need. Turn with me to 1 John real quick. Keep your finger here. I just want to remind you Christians of something, especially during the holiday seasons. Lord, thank if, if we couldn't think about this at any other time, we should be able to now. If you all aren't aware, a real theme in our ministry has always been action-based Christianity. I could care very little about what you believe. I would like to see more of what you do. And I hold myself to the same standard and find that I'm failing miserably, but I'm getting better every day. In John 3, 1 John, this is, if you turn to the book of Revelation and then you hang a left, you'll find John's. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John are all together. And John 3 on Thompson Chain is page 1356. Starting in, uh, I don't know, verse 14. We know, I'm sorry, let's start in verse 11. This is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. 
Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence. And he goes on to teach other things. But back to Luke. My whole point here is this priest should have known, should have stopped. But he's no different than most in the church. So consumed with God and what God would do for him. The ways God can expand his territory, make him rich, advance him, prosper him, that he didn't even notice his friend beaten and left on the side of the road. Those of you that are in Christ need to be looking, keeping an eye out for those that are scattered along the road of salvation. You know, have been chewed up and spit out by churches. They have been beat up by the circumstances of life. And begin to get this divine perspective. Remember that this guy that was beaten up, this was a merciful thing by God because he was on the right road, headed the wrong direction, so God provided something that stopped him. And God was counting on His people who are called His hands and feet to minister on His behalf to this man. See, if trouble never came in your life, you'd never have an opportunity to be blessed by God. But when trouble comes, He has an opportunity to reveal Himself to you. So a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. I won't spend much time on it, but all priests are not Levites. No, all priests are Levites. All Levites are not priests. One-twelfth of the sons of Israel all could qualify to be a priest. But not all of them did. There were regulations. So... Of the Levites, a very special select group were priests. That's the first guy that came by. Then the second larger group. It would literally be like this today. The first guy that passes by is the pastor of a very large church. The next guy that passes by is a faithful member of the congregation. But they both passed on by. But a Samaritan, as he traveled came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. What does that tell you was the real problem with the first two? They saw it. They were aware of it. But it didn't really move them. They didn't care. Something happens to Christians that is unfortunate. You forget from what God has pulled you out of. You see yourself as blessed and you forget about all of the rest. You walk down the road and you see somebody hurting and in need and it's a chance for you to be God's hands in their life. For you to help reveal God to them because that's what Jesus desires to do is reveal Himself 
And instead, we pass on by the other side. But this Samaritan took pity. Now, why might a Samaritan take pity and the other two didn't? Think about that for a minute. What is a Samaritan? The closest thing we have to racial problems in the Bible, the closest thing we have to what took place in the 60s here between whites and blacks is Jews and Samaritans. See, in the Old Testament, during the time period under Assyrian rule, the northern half of Israel, which is that map over there, all of those towns, and that's where most of the towns in Israel were, were carried off into Assyria. And one of the ways that Assyria conquered its enemies was by assimilation. The Romans later practiced the same thing. But the southern part of Israel stayed put. The northern part was drug off before Assyria. And Assyria took somebody that was from Texas, so to speak, and put them in New York. And it took somebody from New York and put them in California. It took you out of your unique culture, out of what made you ethnically diverse, and put you in the total opposite so that you would cease to have the distinctions that made you a a distinct people group and you would become Assyrians. Well, the Jews from the southern kingdom, those that had always stayed in the church, they were practically raised there, looked down on those that at one time were pulled out into the world and maybe lived like the world did, like Assyrians did. You following me so far? And so when they came back, to Israel, because God brought everybody that was in Assyria back from Assyria back to Israel, those that had always been in the church looked down on those that had not. Do you understand what I'm saying? Come on, all of us have relatives like this. The pious relative that, you know, has been godly all of their life, that constantly reminds you of the time you got drunk at a party, you know, or whatever it was. That's what we have here. So the Samaritan was somebody that the Jews thought of as lesser. In fact, they had a racial slur for them. All Gentiles were called dogs in the Jewish mind. We are princes with God. We are Israel. The Gentiles are but dogs eating scraps at our table. And Samaritans, I I can't think of a nice way to say it. You know that nasty word that begins with an N here that people use to degrade other people? To call somebody a Samaritan was to call them that. See, these were Jews that had at one time backslidden. Okay? So a Samaritan looks and has pity on him. Why do you think the Samaritan had pity on this guy? Because he knew what it was like to be down and out. He knew what it was like to leave the protection of God's kingdom and be mistreated by the world. Now I've learned to praise God that I know what that's like. doesn't mean that I willingly volunteer for it again. At some time or another, the devil's had his trash bag over my head where I didn't see clearly and he beat me up for a while. That's happened to most Christians. If it hasn't, live a little while. It will. (laughs) And God provided an event in my life and He provides events in people's lives where you can feel good and beat up by what's going on. Tragedy. Horrible things. So that He can reveal Himself in it. This guy was on the right road. He should have been headed towards Jerusalem, but he was being pulled by the lure of the world. Have you all noticed, like, think about this in worship today, and some of this I, I know you know. What do people do in a concert? You, I mean, does anybody look at you crazy if you're at an ACDC concert? You got your hands up there, you're bouncing your head, got your lighter up, you're stone drunk out of your mind. Nobody makes fun of you for that, huh? But you go in the church... And you begin to worship just as freely. 
you got your hands in the air, you're excited, you're dancing, you're having fun for the Lord. And all of a sudden you see the sneers, you know. You see people looking at you like you must be insane. The world's much more accepting of its own than Christians are. There are more pastors eaten after church, figuratively speaking, than there is fried chicken. You know, people's favorite pastime is, did you see what she wore to church? What's wrong with her? You know, and pastor said this, but then people hear that. You know, that cheer song. You remember the theme song to cheers? Everybody wants to go where they know your name. It's true. It's true. If the church could learn to be a little more merciful and a little less judgmental, and God's Word says that. James 2.13 says, His mercy triumphs over His judgment. Then perhaps people would not be headed the wrong way on the right road. So God provides this Samaritan. And the Samaritan takes pity on him. And what does he do for him? It says, He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Friends, when you come across people that have been beaten up by life, they don't need to hear that abortion's wrong. They don't need to hear that they're going to hell. They don't need to hear what pitiful sinners they are. Remember, the beatings just taught them that. They need somebody who says, hey, there's a solution. I can help you. I've been given this oil and this wine. Let me bandage up your wounds. Let me help you. You can't walk? Let me put you on my own donkey for a while. Let me help carry you. You know, there was a native of interior China and he was praying because he heard missionaries. And uh, the missionaries were telling him that Jesus was the Son of God and that He was the right way. And the interior of China was familiar with two other figures. One was Buddha, who he was taught was a way to enlightenment. And another was uh, Confucius, who was basically an intellectual way to live. And he was troubled in his thoughts and he began to pray, Lord, show me who is right. He prayed to a god called Shang-Ti. We would go, oh, he's pagan. No, to him, Shang-Ti was the god above all gods. And he was asking Shang-Ti, show me. Show me what is right. Is Buddha right? Is Confucius right? Is this Jesus right? And remember, to the Asian, Buddha looked like him. Somebody easy to relate to, although Buddha was not from the Orient. I'm from the Orient in the sense of the Eastern Hemisphere he was, but not from the Oriental Kingdoms. They remade him in, in the image. Buddha never had slanted eyes, but... He was from India. Siddhartha was his name. But aside from that, he's praying. And some he could relate to because his culture was that way. And God brought him a dream. And in the dream, he had fallen into a deep pit. Now, this is a true story. I'm not making this up. In a deep pit. And in the deep pit, he climbed and he couldn't get out. And he scratched at the walls and he couldn't get out. And everything he did, he just slid deeper into the pit. That's what the book is about. It's about teaching us that we are in a pit that we can't get out without help. And Confucius came by and he said, Ah, my friend, you have fallen into a pit. If you can, avoid it next time. Yeah, well, that's good, thanks. Buddha came by and said, If you can reach me, if you can get up to where I am, then I will help you out. And then the third figure that appeared was Jesus. And he climbed down the side of the wall. He put him on his back and he climbed out. And to the native of interior China, this spoke volumes. It showed him the difference between man's wisdom, between a religion that was based upon your achievements to get you close to God, and upon Jesus that would come down, meet you where you are, and help you out of the crap that you've gotten yourself into. 
And you know what? He got born again. Now, what we have here in this story is we have a guy that's been abused by life, but somebody took pity on him because he knew what it was like to receive mercy himself. He bandaged up his wounds with oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Why two silver coins? Two in the Bible is always the number of covenant. You can't have a covenant with one person. For Diana and I to strike an agreement, there has to be two of us. Silver is always the number of redemption in the Bible. If something was to be purchased, if it was to be redeemed from something bad, the Bible always used silver to do it. Now, how did the Good Samaritan get familiar with this stuff? Because he knew what it was like to be redeemed. He knew what it was like to be in a covenant. He knew what it was like to have somebody pay his expenses for him because he couldn't. Those of us that have received mercy have to learn how to be ministers of mercy to others. The same silver that redeemed you needs to be able to redeem someone else because God had provided this scenario for just this purpose. Say, God would let something bad happen to me? Why would He do that? For your own good. Same reason that you'll take a belt and wear your child out if it's for His good. Say, but what kind of God would allow me to be beaten stripped? One that cares about you an awful lot. Same kind that would allow a son to be killed for you. You need to get out of your head that you have the right way of thinking about God and accept whatever the book says about God. It's not blind faith. Yeah, I taught one time on trust but verify. The Bible is about you trusting in God based on what He's done in your life. There is no such thing as blind faith. That's a fairy tale that somebody that didn't understand the book made up for people. The Bible is all about trusting in God based on what He has done. He's demonstrated His love to mankind over and over and over. Your faith, your trust in Him is not based on nothing. So the Samaritan pays his expenses. It says, look after Him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. In the kingdom, we are supposed to be more cognizant of other people's needs than our own. We need to be looking for people that were on the right path. They were headed the right way, but something happened and they got derailed and now they're headed the wrong way. Not so that you can beat them up. Not so that you can say, you're going to hell, you're... You're a bad person, all of these things, but so that you can bandage their wounds. So that the comfort you've been given by God, you can comfort them with. Friends, if you're on that road, and you might be headed the wrong direction, you need to consider the circumstances of your life and say, is God trying to get my attention? Look around. See, has He provided people that are trying to bandage my wounds? Are there people that are calling themselves representatives of Him that are ministering to me? If that's the case, then perhaps God's trying to get your attention. See, this works two ways. Both of these people were supposed to be in covenant with God. 
Most passed on by on the other side. But these two men that God was dealing with, one was the recipient of mercy and the other was a giver of mercy because he had already received. Was anyone better than the other? One was just giving what he had been given. They were both equally low, right? One's beaten up, laying there half naked, and the other was that way last week. That's why he had mercy on him. <laughs> Y'all turn with me to First Kings. I got just a few minutes. Hold that, son. Thank you. First Kings. All right, you turn to the front of your Bible, which is Genesis. You'll move through Genesis to Exodus, then Leviticus, then Numbers, then Deuteronomy, then First and Second Samuel, then Kings. Yeah, let's get Judges and Ruth, Bible scholar that I am. Uh, so in First Kings, we're going to be in chapter 18. In the Thompson chain, this is page 397. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, and then 1st Kings. As you sit here today, all of us having some experience with this road between the two kingdoms, all of us somewhere on it, none of us having arrived in the kingdom of God and none of us sold out to be in the kingdom of the world, or you wouldn't be here. You know, if all you cared about was meeting your carnal desires, you would not be here today. Jesus has seen something in every one of you that has caused Him to choose to reveal the Father to you. He's working at that in your life through circumstances. He's manipulating your jobs. Acts 17.26 said He would do it. He's manipulating the places where you live so that you will have a full relationship with Him. No different than this guy who's on the road and God began to manipulate his circumstances for the same purpose. Since all of us are somewhere on that, I wanted to look at a time in the last six or seven minutes that we have where Israel, all of the people supposed to be saved, had some of them sold out and some of them on this road closer to the kingdom of the world than the kingdom of God. And what God sent a prophet to say to them. I want you to consider it. The Bible teaches us in the book of Revelation, that God would wish that you would be hot or cold, but nowhere in between. That causes Him to desire to throw you up, to puke you out, the Bible says. Why would that be? When you call yourself a Christian, but you live somewhere between the two worlds, half dead, it's confusing and it's a misrepresentation of the gospel to people. They'll look at your life and say, they say they're a Christian, but did you see what they did and how they act? When you are sold out for the world, nobody wonders where you stand. You remember Anton LaVey? Anybody know who he is? He's the founder of the Church of Satan. Is anybody disappointed when he, beact, when he behaves badly? No, it's what you expect, right? But let some man of God, somebody who stands up on TV and preaches, behave in any similar fashion, everybody's greatly let down, right? See, you need to either be cold or hot but you can't be anywhere in the middle. The gospel makes that claim. This book was meant to move you. And I do a poor job with it sometimes. I know that. It was never intended for you to be able to hear the gospel and leave unchanged. It was never intended for you to be able to just kind of hang out in the crowd with a foot in both worlds. The gospel was intended for one purpose, to move you to cold or move you to hot, but never to leave you in the middle because this was the dangerous ground. This was the ground where you weren't just doing harm to yourself, you're doing harms to others, harm to others. How do you hear people say this though? They say it in this way. 
churches full of hypocrites. Right? Why don't you go be a real one? You know, why don't you go be a real Christian? If church is full of hypocrites, you go be different. But really what they're complaining about is, I don't see anybody hot, and I don't really see them cold. I see them right in the middle, a foot in both worlds, half dead. We need to be different. Listen to how Elijah said this. First uh, Kings 18, verse 20. And I don't, I don't want to set the historical setting here for you. We'll do it some other time. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah, Elijah is a man of God, went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, follow Him. But the people said nothing. Friends, we're before you today saying, pick a side and be wholehearted about it. Don't hang out in the middle, on the road, in the place of beating. You need to pick a side. If it's, if it's the kingdom of the world, you're just not convinced Jesus is who He says He is, I can live with that. At least nobody will look at your life and be confused by it. If it's the kingdom of God, of course, that's what I hope to persuade you to. You find a full, abundant life. But what we cannot do is hang out in between. The next thing that happens in this book, in this chapter, is Elijah calls for all those that pick Yahweh to come to him and all those that don't to go to these other prophets. Then he puts them all to death. He said, golly, that is so harsh. Why would a God of love do that? Because this God has drawn a line in the sand since the cross and He has clearly said to the world, I love the world. I didn't come to condemn you. You're already condemned. You need to realize that. I'm the way out of it. You can choose me and choose life or you can stay in condemnation. It's what we're teaching on Wednesday nights. See, we as the church, we don't need to run around and tell people they're condemned. They know it already. We need to show people a solution and it needs to be evident in our lives. I'm asking you today to choose a side, to get on it, to get on it wholeheartedly. If you're not convinced Jesus is who He says He is, that's okay. I'm not worried about that. You, that's fine. You get on your side and I'll pray for you that your eyes be open. But if you believe that He's God, if you believe that He's Lord, then you need to live like He's Lord. And those of you that are already convinced, that call yourself by the name and brag that we've been in church so many years, we need to act like it. We need to look for those that the world's chewing up and spitting out and help them. Help them. Let's not look at our brothers that are in need and say, oh, be warm, be well fed, I'll pray for you. Let's be Jesus to the people. When you call yourself a Christian, you're calling yourself Christ. In some languages, there's no difference. When you say Christian, what you're saying in their native tongue is, I am Christ because you're Jesus to them. I want the church to live more like Jesus. And I want those in the world to see it, to receive comfort and to be persuaded to leave the kingdom of the world and go the right way. The worst thing that could ever happen is for Christians on their way to Jerusalem to turn and begin to lean towards Jericho. And if you're in a place where you feel like life's beating you up, not a bad place to be. Look around and see if God's trying to reveal Himself to you. And choose a side. Y'all stand up. Let's pray.